in Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass, Humpty Dumpty points out to Alice that there are 365 days in a year and only one day out of those 365 days for birthday presents. And he follows up with this observation with a bewildering statement. He says to Alice, there is glory for you. And Alice is quite befuddled by that comment and says, I don't know what glory means. To which Humpty Dumpty responded, of course you don't, until I tell you. I mean by glory, there is a nice knockdown argument. And of course, Alice protests that that's not what glory means. A nice knockdown argument. A nice argument that you can knock down. Well, I wonder often if we understand what glory means. Not only does Humpty Dumpty make up his own meaning, but I think that very often, while we perhaps understand the definition, the dictionary definition for glory, we do not truly grasp glory. When we think of glory, at least in the biblical context and in the Hebrew context, the term kabod means originally that which is weighty. And then it came by way of metaphor to refer to the one who has influence, the one who deserves glory. And so glory in the scriptures refer to external splendor, brilliance, majesty. It refers to the honor and the worth. Uh, it means one who is worthy then of honor and respect and adoration. That's glory. And in the book of Colossians, in this epistle, we get a grasp of what true glory looks like. A glory that is infinitely revealed in the person of Christ. Before we get to the passage that we read, we recognize that the writer Paul begins this epistle to the Colossians with thanksgiving and prayer. And he tells them that he prays for them. And he prays essentially that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will but filled with his knowledge expressed in a particular way in walking worthy of the Lord and walking worthily of the Lord by bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with might and giving thanks for being delivered from darkness and being conveyed into the kingdom of the beloved Son, through whom Paul says they have received redemption and the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. It refers then to Christ as preeminent over the creation. Now, the writer speaks of the preeminence of Christ, the glory of Christ over creation. And then he says, well, why is Christ then preeminent over creation? We see this now in the next verse when he says, for. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, that are visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. You see now not only the glory of Christ in his relation to God, that he is God of God and light of light, but he is the firstborn over all creation. 
He's the head of the creation. And he's the head of creation precisely because he is its creator. Let's look at the text. For by him all things were created. All that are in heaven and all that are on earth. This entire creation, the physical world, is his. We live in a world where evolution is the theory of currency. As this world came from some primordial soup, there is a cosmic accident and we are products and all products of a cosmic accident. But you read in Genesis chapter 1, without so much as a how do you do, without any formal introduction, the first verse of the Bible begins with in the beginning, God. Doesn't stop to say who he is. Doesn't stop to tell you what he's like. The first statement in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we read successively. For six days, God said, let there be, and it was so. Now the writer of of Colossians, Paul, is teaching us. That it was God creating the world through Christ. That Christ is the creator of the physical sphere and of the spiritual sphere. All that we see of this earth, of this planet, all we see of this physical creation is by the power of Christ the creator. And every spiritual being is created by Christ. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth. And he gives us the example, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions. It does not matter the hierarchy of angelic powers. It does not matter the rank of spiritual beings. All of them are his creation. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him. Not only is he the creator But now he is the agent of creation. All things were created through him, through his will and through his power. And then he says, and all things were created for him. He is the creator. And he is the agent of creation. And he is the goal of creation. This world was not put here for itself. We were not created for our own purposes. We were created for God. And more specifically, for Christ. The goal of creation is that we should bring glory to Christ. All things were created through him and for him. That he should have preeminence, that he should receive the glory. And so when the question is asked, what are we here for? One of the fundamental questions that we must ask ourselves is why are we here? Why were we created? Why didn't God not create somebody else? Why did he create you with the gifts and abilities that you have? It is for his glory. Not only is he then the goal of creation, he reiterates the preeminence of Christ and he is before all things. And in him all things consist. Not only is he the goal of creation, he is the glue of creation. It is he who binds creation together. We think of the nations on earth and we think of the nuclear powers in the U.S. and in Russia and in China and we think that 
They could destroy the planet with the press of a button. The amount of destructive power that they have under their control. But it is Christ who rules creation. All things were created through him and for him. And in him all things consist. It is he who upholds the creation. It is he who sustains the creation. It is he who keeps the creation from spinning out of control. And it is he who keeps creation from being destroyed by itself and by evil forces. You see, the glory of Christ as creator and sustainer of the universe. And Paul is not yet finished with the glory of Christ. He says in terms of his relationship to God the Father, he is God. In terms of the creation, he is the creator and the sustainer and the goal of this creation. But in relation to the church, you see his glory. And that's what you find starting then at verses 17, at least verses 18 and 19 and 20. You see the glory of Christ now in the church. He says he's the head of the body of the church. He is supreme over the church. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And there he tells you why Christ is the head of the church. The head of the body of the church. It is because he is the firstborn from the dead. It means again that he's preeminent over death. He is the one who conquered death and conquered death definitively. More than that, he says of him, the reason is the head of the church, it because it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. He is the head of the church because he is victorious over death, but he is the head of the church because he possesses all divine qualities. In him, God was pleased that his fullness should dwell. He's raised, he's seated in glory, but he rules because the divine fullness dwells in him. All the attributes that reside in the Father reside completely in the incarnate Christ. If God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, in his wisdom, and in his power, in his holiness and justice, and his goodness and truth, all these properties and all these characteristics belong and reside in Jesus Christ. Only in him. It pleased the Father that in him, and, and, and it is emphatic, in him is emphatic. It means in him and in him alone. All fullness should reside. It pleased the Father that in him, in Christ alone, all his fullness should dwell. He's the head of the church because... He's supreme over death because all divine fullness dwells in him. He's the head of the church. We read in verse 20, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. The reason that Christ is the head of the church is because by his death on the cross, which Paul calls the blood of the cross, it pleased God through Christ to reconcile all things to himself. And reconciliation of all things to himself does not mean that all in creation will be saved. 
all things are reconciled in terms of pacification, that he will, because of his death on the cross, pacify all forces. But the thrust of this passage is that Christ is head of the church because he has reconciled us by his blood. He has turned us from enmity into friendship. He has restored us from estrangement and alienation to a relationship of friendship with God. He has brought us who were sinners, who were once strangers to grace. He has brought us nigh to God. And because of that, because his blood was shed, and because he has brought us then into the family of God and made enemies into friends of God, he is therefore the one who heads the church, who leads the church. My friends... Christ is head of the church because he conquered death. He is the head of the church because in him all divine fullness dwells. He is the head of the church because he is a reconciler, the one who brings us to God, who brings us into a right relationship, a relationship of friendship with God by his death on the cross. You and I must worship a glorious Christ. We are easily fascinated with the glitz and glamour of celebrities. And at times, if we are brutally honest, we would wish a little of their stardust will fall on us. But we need to know that the brightest luminaries amongst us are but little candles, flickering candles, compared to the blazing sun, the blazing brilliance of Jesus Christ. For whatever we perceive Christ to be, however we conceive him, we must think of him no less than that he is God himself, the glorious God, the image of the invisible God, the one who is equal with the Father. You see, Paul does not confuse the persons of the Trinity. He does not say that Jesus Christ is the Father. But he makes it clear that he is equal to the Father. For 250 years in the early church, between 200 and 450, the early church was embroiled in controversies, many of which were Trinitarian in nature. You had the controversies of the tritheism, of those who believed the Godhead consisted of three equally separate beings. So the Godhead had three different gods in it. A heresy that the early church rejected. But there were those who were more subtle. Who taught modalism. One of them was a man called Sibelius in the third century. And Sibelius argued that the persons of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were really three distinct phases in the Godhead. And so he argued that the Father appeared first in creation and in the law. Then the Father appeared in the Son in the incarnation. Then the Father appeared as the Holy Spirit in regeneration. Basically, the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were really modes, different modes of the same person. God the Father acting as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at different times in history. And so the early church rejected this. That the Father and Son are distinct persons, but one God sharing the same being, the same substance, the same essence. That there is no distinction 
in being between the Father and the Son. That Jesus Christ is fully God. It is a difficulty to understand the Trinity. But there is one being, one substance, three persons. But one being called God. That in Jesus Christ there is no greater authority. A relative, you know, a relative of mine went into uh, a mall and he came to one of these juice bars that you have, you know, where they give you fresh juices and oranges and apples and all kinds of fruits. And he came in and saw this exotic array and he said, you know, well, I want a juice. I want some juice, but I want orange and I want some peach and I want some apples and I want uh, some grapes. And I want all that mixed together. And the attendant says, sir, we can't do that. And he was mystified by that. He said, well, why can't we do that? Well, it's against the rules, she said. And well, he, wasn't, he wasn't having everybody argue with them for about half an hour and said, well, you know what, tell you what you do. Go call your manager. And so they went off and got the manager, and the manager came. And he pointed out what he wanted. He wanted, you know, this orange and apple and grapes and all that kind of lovely stuff. And she wasn't to just say, well, it's against... No, 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 do not tell me it's against the rule again. He wasn't having any of it. He says, she says no, it's against the rule, sir. We can't give it to you. He said, well, what, what if I buy the, an apple juice and I buy an orange juice and I pay for them separate and just ask you to combine them. Could you do that? No, we couldn't. It's against the rules. And then he said, well, go call your manager. And she said, well, that will be headquarters. You'd have to talk to headquarters to be able to get that concoction you want. They're always referring you higher and higher to somebody else. But you see, with Jesus Christ, there is no higher authority. He's God. He's king of glory. He rules. He is a king in all his brilliance, in all of his majesty. There is no gap between him and the Father in authority or in being or in power or in glory. He's God the Son, fully God. And the writer begins, he says to these Colossians, you need to know who Christ is. He is the image, the very imprint of God the Father. To be very careful because there is a tendency afoot to belittle Christ, to bring him down to our level. And if we don't bring him down to our level, we make him a little bit higher than ourselves. A glorified man. He is the image of the invisible God. And we must glorify him. We must worship Christ as God. That the only way we can know God the Father is through God the Son. If we are going to have a relationship with God the Father, we must have it with Christ. No man has seen God at any time except the unique Son, the one who dwells in his bosom. No man knows the Father except the Son and those to whom he reveals him. You must worship Christ. You must seek to know Christ. Because in so knowing him, you know the Father. In him resides all treasures of wisdom, all might, all authority, all glory. The Christ we serve is God. And this passage reminds us that not only must we worship Christ as the glorious God, 
better make him the center of our lives because he's our glorious creator. We live in an age of extreme narcissism and hubris where we believe that all things revolve around us. It's always about us. But we need to know that life is not about us. It's not about what we think. It's not about our opinions. How do I live? I think. No, it's not about how we think. It's what Christ thinks. What he wants, what he desires of us. You see, he's the king of creation. He's the one who made all things. By his power, he made all things. And all things are made for him. All things are made by him. And all things are made for him. And it means that Christ must be the center of our lives. That we are to live our lives according to his dictates. We mustn't go about trying to think about what the world wants. Or what the world approves of. Or what our neighbors think is best. We're not to consider what our friends and our co-workers and our peers think that we ought to do. We need to know that all things are made by Christ and for Christ. You see, we must give glory to him because he's our creator. And more importantly, it means that we are not to fear any man. The Colossians were afraid of spiritual forces. They were afraid of evil powers. Well, the writer says all things, principalities and powers, the invisible and the visible, were created by him and all are subject to him. There are forces in the world that are too powerful for us. We wrestle against, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, even in heavenly places. There is a devil that is out there that is at large. That is too powerful for us, but he's nothing for Christ because he himself was created by Christ. It means that we're not to be afraid of circumstances. We're not to be afraid of evil powers. We're not to be afraid of men and women because all are created by him. Your boss may want to get rid of you, but you know he can't do so unless Christ gives him permission. You don't have to be afraid. Christ is king. He alone determines who lives and dies. He turns the heart of the king like the river course, the water course. Do you know how many, how, you know how many plans have been imagined against you? Do you know how many things the devil would have done to you if you were permitted? But you see, he's under the ages of Christ. You see, even Job, even Job, Satan could not touch him. He didn't have the authority to go and mess about with Job's life. He had to get permission from the throne of God. And when God gave him permission, God says, by the way, don't touch his life. You're not permitted. In other words, God gave him, a, put him on a leash. You may do so and so, but not this. He's king. Our God is king over life. He's king over all men, over all forces. We don't live our lives with courage for his glory, knowing that he rules He's sovereign over life. And whether we live or die or we succeed or fail lies ultimately in the decision of our king. We must live for him. We mustn't be afraid of men. We mustn't be afraid, be afraid of what people think of us because ultimately the only thing that matters is the opinion of King Jesus. And finally, my friends, because he's glorious, he's the head of the church. It means that we are to submit to him. He's our head. We need to remember always that the church is not ours. 
The church doesn't belong to the pastor. It doesn't belong to the elders or deacons. It is Christ. He's the head of the church. You know, we, we don't have a head apart from Christ. We don't believe in popes and papal supremacy. We believe that Christ is the only head. All of us are under shepherds and servants under Christ, our head. And we are to submit to him. We are to obey him. It is important, you know, friends, that we live with two thoughts before us. The great sufferings of Christ for us and the great glory of Christ. We'd always live looking to the cross of Christ, the one who died for our sins. But we'd always to keep before us that this Christ who died is the glorious, living, reigning Christ. We live between these two pillars, the sufferings of Christ and the glories of Christ. I like what the Apostle Peter says. The elders who are among you I exhort. I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Peter says something astonishing. I have witnessed his sufferings and I will partake of his glory. You and I must live not enamored with this world and its fake glory. Not too long ago, another friend of mine was assessing the wealth of someone who died. And in his safe, he had a lot of gold, rings and chain. And he thought, this is very rich. This is a lot of money here, thousands of dollars. So he marches off with a very big bag of gold chains and watches and all kinds of jewelry and pearl. And he goes to the assessor the appraiser and he gives it to him and he's waiting for the guy to give him back some sum like $20,000. The guy says $400. Most of it was fake. Those thick, beautiful chains were just fake. And the glory of this world is fake. It's not worth much. You need to see Christ who blazes in glory, who shines brighter than the brightest star, the Christ who is God himself, the Christ who is creator and the head of the church, under whom all things are subdued. And the reality is this, that you who see his, his sufferings here on the cross will one day share in his glory. You don't, want, you don't have to hobnob with celebrities and influential and powerful people. You don't have to move in the inner circles in this world. You're moving in the right circle. You're already moving in the greatest circle you could ever move. You're moving in the circle with Christ who is King and Lord. May God grant us to see Christ who has suffered and the Christ who dwells in glory and yearn for him that one day you too will have his stardust sprinkled on you and you will shine like the stars. May Jesus bless and help you for his sake. Amen. <laughs>